Hello. My name is Misty Denman. Really glad to be with you here today. Part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I am of the opinion that Netflix is the greatest technological invention of all time. And I'm not so much kidding about that. Uh, if you name a good television series, I've probably either watched it or have plans to watch it. And I'm not so much of a just sit down and watch TV person, but I have an iPad and I carry it around the house with me. And when I'm doing dishes, it's sitting there in front of me. And when I'm ironing, it's sitting there in front of me. And so I, um, I am a big fan of it. And one of my favorite series that I have seen um, so far is The Crown. There's only been one season of it, and it's only ever been on Netflix. It was never on um, a network, and it is all about the early years of Queen Elizabeth II. And of that whole first season, and I do think there's more to come, for me, the most powerful episode was when Elizabeth was coronated in 1953. The sets of this show were really lavish, and the acting is really good, and you just get a sense of being there. So before I watched the show, my main interest in the British royal family were like, you know, my memories when I was in like kindergarten, I think, of watching Diana get married, and then of course watching Kate get married, and occasionally seeing what great outfit she has on. But as I watched that um, coronation episode, I went and did some reading about what that whole thing was like. And it is really, really interesting. So did you know that it took an entire team of people 14 months to plan just this one single day of her coronation. She actually became queen and wasn't officially crowned until a little bit later for a variety of reasons. But on that day when she went from wherever she started from to Westminster Abbey where um, the coronation happened, three million people lined that route. She was in this would give Cinderella, you know, a run for her money, gold, carriage, and she went incredibly slowly by it, so all these three million people could just get a glimpse of her, and then when she actually got to Westminster Abbey, um, 8,000 people were there um, to watch her be crowned, and I think there were like 129 either heads of state or representative of heads of state there, and just surrounded by this untold wealth and pageantry and tradition, there was this very long ceremony that she was a part of. And we have a picture of uh, when she's being crowned there. Of, and really what it did was interwove her responsibilities as head of the Church of England, because she still is officially that, and her civic responsibilities as well. And surrounded, you see, um, primarily the people that are right there around her are actually uh, leadership from the Church of England. But you see her there just taking this um, official um, passage in her life. Now, her crown that was on her head, um, it was pretty special. Actually, I want to talk about that in a minute, but I don't know if you can kind of see that she has this incredible um, dress on. She was actually head of, there were still a bunch of British colonies at this time, and on her dress are woven in these symbols of all of the different colonies in addition to England that she was still ruler over, and she has this um, incredibly long train that was made of hand woven velvet, uh, silk velvet or velvet silk, whatever that is. And then it was lined on the backside with um, Canadian ermine and I think it took a lot of little ermine to make that incredibly long train. I guess there weren't animal rights <laughs> activists then like there are now. Um, 
but I read also that it was so heavy and the friction against the floor, she had to have like six people help her carry that velvet cape. We have another picture of her official portrait I think is so interesting there. Um, this orb that she's carrying was carried by other kings that has all kinds of symbolic meaning, um, some of which has actually been lost, and then this, the scepter, all of this and the, the braiding and the ropes, all um, symbolic of what she would become as ruler. And um, what I think is so interesting, what I was going to tell you earlier about this crown, is that it weighed five pounds, which isn't that much if you hold it in your hand, but if you think of her um, carrying that five pounds of gold and jewels on her head, I would imagine she felt the full weight of the responsibility um, of her role there. And um, I just think it's pretty remarkable that even today we have... Um, consecration and ordination ceremonies and um, coronations that um, are deeply meaningful and symbolic. Now last week we studied uh, those amazing clothes that were designed by God for our priests to wear and what all that clothing represented. Today we are going to see the ordination and consecration of the priests who would first serve God and then the people of Israel for their whole lives with this sacred sense of duty and honor. And like Elizabeth, they would be prepared in part for this job by this lengthy um, ceremony that would be deep with meaning both for themselves and for everyone who um, took part in that and witnessed that as well. They, um, it would be a seven-day ceremony, and by the end, they were stepping into a whole new role for their lives. So immediately after Israel completed the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings, God planned for this priest to be installed to carry out the daily duties that would be part of the functioning of the tabernacle. And the priest's job, um, in a nutshell, was to represent the people before God, but also they would represent God to the people. And they really played a very vital role in God's plan to dwell among his people. So I want to begin our study today with the end in mind because it will help us to understand, I think, why God called for each of the steps and the part of each part of the um, consecration and ordination process. And because we're flipping a lot around in our Bibles today, I actually put the last verses of chapter 29 on your verse sheet. So if you'll look at that with me at the top of your verse sheet. This is why God built the tabernacle. It's why um, he called for priests. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, when we talk about uh, the consecration of the priest, it really means that these men were being set apart by God for his holy purpose. It was both a great honor and a great responsibility. So with that in mind, let's open our Bibles to chapter 29. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 if you'd like to follow along with me. 
Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And that is um, God speaking to Moses up on Mount Sinai. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make of them, them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his priests uh, and his sons. Aaron and his sons participate in a ceremony that set them apart to serve God. These men have been chosen by God to serve him, and there were multiple steps in this consecration and ordination, just as there were for Queen Elizabeth, and each of these steps was prescribed by God, and as won't be any surprise to us at this point in our study, full of meaning. As we've seen each week, uh, there's meaning also in the construction of the tabernacle and all of the... um, things that went along with it, not just for Israel, but also for us here and now as well. So Moses was asked to gather all the supplies necessary at the beginning. He brought Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's four sons, which would have been the nephews of Moses, to the tabernacle courtyard. And we know from Leviticus chapter 8 that all of Israel was here as well. All of Israel could not have fit inside of the courtyard. So that means that each tribe would have sent elders or representatives inside of the courtyard to bear witness to what would be happening over these next seven days. And then it would have been their job to take what they saw and heard back to their people and report it to them. So in these verses, we see that the first two steps of the ordination process were the cleansing and the clothing of the priests. So first, the cleansing or the washing. Moses was responsible for washing his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons with water at the bronze laver. Throughout the Bible, you'll notice that sin is often described as either dirt or defilement. So look with me at Isaiah 1.16 on your verse sheet. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And then Jeremiah 4. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? Before anything else could occur, God's servants needed to be clean before him. So that physical washing was symbolic of their spiritual cleansing. We believe this is the first time that the bronze laver was used, and here it was a full body washing, which would represent a complete cleansing from God, which was necessary um, for these men to serve him. It was only at this special installation of the priesthood that they were completely washed, and hereafter the priest would only need to wash their hands and their feet in order to be ceremonially clean. We also know that we need to be clean before God. Jesus shed blood, accomplished that for us once and for all. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 6, 11. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And when I consider my own sin, um, knowing that I am permanently washed clean by Jesus is just immeasurable grace and mercy. After the men are washed, Moses then dressed them in the special garments that we learned about last week. Aaron was clothed in the undergarments, the robe, the ephod, and the breastplate that were uniquely designed for the high priest. Each purpose, we remember, uh, each piece had purpose and helped both the priests and the people understand God's relationship with Israel. There was also a practical aspect, I think, to being clothed in this very special way. Even today, when we see men and women in uniform, like police uniforms or military uniforms, um, that uniform says a lot about what their duties and responsibilities are and the authority that comes along with it without them having to say anything. Um, For the average Israelite and their incredibly simple garments, I think that seeing those beautiful priestly garments would have automatically communicated many things about who the priests were and about the glory and majesty of God himself and their role in the community. Put together, it was a uniform of glory and beauty, and Aaron was required to wear it any time he went within the tabernacle. These priceless garments, I think we learned this last week too, were to be passed down from high priest to high priest. And when that transfer happened, it would have been part of the transference of the duty that went along with that position. Now Aaron's sons, the regular priests, wore clothes um, that were special as well, and they also were required to wear them as they ministered. They put them on for the first time during this consecration ceremony. And chapter um, 28 tells us that even though they were simpler, they were also for God's glory and beauty. Now when Aaron and his sons put on the new priestly clothes, they obviously had to take off and leave behind whatever it was that they were wearing before. Whatever clothes they were, they were unfit for these men's new role and purpose in their lives. I think there's a lot of imagery throughout the Bible of uh, putting on God's garments. Of course, we learned last week that as believers were dressed in the strength of God's spirit. But look with me also at Isaiah 61. This is actually 61.10, the first one on your verse sheet. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul exalts in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. Christ followers are cleansed by Jesus' blood and clothed in his righteousness, grace and mercy again. If we look back at our passage sandwiched between the clothing of Aaron and his sons, or or, or clothing of Aaron and then his sons, we see that Moses was to anoint the men with holy oil. God gave an exact recipe for that oil. We read about that in chapter 30. It was to be made by a trained perfumer, and it had very specific measurements of this highly aromatic um, myrrh, cinnamon, other spices, along with olive oil. It was to be used only as the holy anointing oil. In addition to being poured over their heads, it was placed on all the furnishings in the tabernacle complex and the utensils that would be used there as well. And so once anointed, both the men and all of the furnishings would be designated as holy and set apart for God's service. In fact, just in those few verses there that these instructions are given, the word holy is used six different times. 
This was to be God's sacred dwelling place. They were his sacred servants set apart as holy unto him. Later in the Old Testament, future generations of priests, along with some prophets and some kings, were um, anointed with uh, oil. It would have been a different recipe, but there was also times that they were anointed. And that anointing with oil is always a symbol of God pouring out his Holy Spirit uh, on these men so that they could be used in his service. Look with me at the um, next Isaiah verse on your verse sheet. That's 61.1. And it says... The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound. Before Jesus' life on earth, God would both um, give and then take back his Holy Spirit from people. But for those of us who had trusted Christ, we have been permanently sealed with his spirit. Look at 2 Corinthians with me. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us to give us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That is just an amazing truth to me. And what is it a guarantee of? Of our salvation, of God never leaving us or forsaking us, of calling us his very own children, and of us having a home with him in all of eternity. Once the men have been washed and clothed in the priestly garments and anointed with oil, their ordination is now complete. Aaron is now officially high priest of all of Israel and his sons, priests as well. But this ceremony has the dual function of both conferring their titles and roles and setting them apart for holy service. So it's not over yet. Now they will continue on with offering sacrifices to God. So read along with me, if you would, in verses uh, 10 through 15. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and pull it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all of the fat that covers the entrails, entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Now in the first verse of chapter 29, Moses had gathered all the supplies that would be needed for this entire ordination process. Here we see God's purpose for those animals. They will be offered at the bronze sacrifice uh, as a as a bronze altar as a sacrifice for the men. Three animals, three different types of offerings. And let me say here that I know the rest of this chapter is bloody business. And for some of us, that's a hard thing. There's not anybody that loves a furry animal more than I do, and I I understand the difficulty of it, but. Um, I'm just grateful as I read this that because of Jesus, we no longer have to participate in this kind of sacrificial system anymore. The first of these sacrifices is the bull, and it is a burnt offering to atone for the sins of the priests. 
The imagery, and I'm sure the physical laying their hands on the head of that bull, transferring symbolically their sins from themselves to that animal is so powerful. And when I put myself in their place, I imagine that I would have felt sorrow um, for the things I had done that would now cause something else to suffer. Um, but I wonder if it was an especially powerful experience for Aaron, who just so recently had fashioned a golden calf um, out of gold and led the people astray in the worship of that. Intertwined with that regret, I think I would feel would also have been a great sense of gratitude and relief, I think, that God had made a way for my sins to be atoned for. You wouldn't have to carry the weight of that sin and shame any longer, but that relief came at a high price. After the bull is slaughtered, some of the blood is placed on the horns of the bronze altar. The rest is poured out at the base. The animal is divided and portions are burned on the altar, the rest outside of camp. Leviticus chapter 4 tells us that God granted forgiveness for the sins that were transferred symbolically onto that animal. Now a ram is offered next and again. Their hands were laid on the head of that animal, transferring sin onto it. The entire ram is consumed by fire on that altar, and this is known as a burnt offering. And we read that this offering is a pleasing aroma to God. And that's a common phrase used throughout Scripture. It means here that God was pleased with their sacrifice. Because the animal is totally consumed by fire, I think it also symbolizes this complete dedication of the priest to God's service. Their whole hearts, their whole minds, their whole souls were to be completely offered freely to God. This picture of complete dedication applies to us as well. Look with me at Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, for the first several years of my walk with God, reading that verse and the thought of giving him control, full control of my life was really a scary thought for me, really difficult. I would constantly worry that he was going to ask me to do something harder than I thought I could do or something way different from the well-laid-out plans I had for myself. Um, I am here to tell you I have learned, and sometimes the hard way, that his plans have for my life have always been better than my own. Um, not such a surprise in hindsight, but sometimes it has been as it's happened. His ways are always better than ours. Um, that offering our bodies as living sacrifices, we're putting our lives in the best possible hands. Look with me at verses 19 through 21, and we'll read about that third offering. It says, You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. 
So after that second ram is slaughtered, Moses does this interesting thing with some of the blood. He smears some of it on the right ear, thumb, and toe of Aaron and his sons. And what is that about? In part, placing blood on just those exposed parts at the top, middle, and bottom of the um, priests were a way to represent being um, fully covered in their blood to atone for their sins. And it's also a foreshadowing of Jesus' blood completely um, covering us. But there's more. Many scholars believe that placing blood on the men's ears reminded them of the need to listen to God's word. At the time, that meant the law that God had given to Moses that he was to take back to the people. And as God's representatives, it would have been vitally important that these men would lead the charge in hearing and heeding and obeying everything that God said. They are the spiritual leaders of this nation, and as they go, so the people will go as well. Aaron had led the people far astray. I'm sure he understands something of the power of leadership, either for good or evil. Now he is marked with blood that is intended to put him on a path of holy leadership that's rooted in God's word. I think the parallels for us are clear. In a world full of noise, it's God's word that we listen to um, because it is good and it is true and it is life-changing. I think our Reformation series this fall has given me um, so much gratitude for the easy access we have to his word and to great teaching. And I know I have taken that for granted in the past. I hope I never do again. The bud placed on the men's thumbs was a reminder to do God's work. For the rest of their lives, they would literally use their hands to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Today, every believer has kingdom work to do. God gives us gifts and abilities. Um, We're to use those for his service and for his glory. And even from the earliest days of Israel's history, God wanted his people to be holy And to be representatives um, of him is true today as well. Because I think we live in a post-Christian era uh, that is many ways very dark. Our light um, can be very visible uh, to the world around us. Look with me at 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That is using our light to shine into a dark world. Some of the ram's blood was also placed on the men's big toes. And this is thought to have been a reminder that the men were to walk in God's ways. It was their duty, and it was their responsibility, and it was their privilege, just as it is ours today. Jesus says this in John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. How amazing is that? Christ followers should listen to God's word, do God's work, and walk in his ways. So let's continue reading. Look with me now down at verse 26. We're going to read verses 26 through 28, and then I'm going to skip a little. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. 
And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. And now skip down with me, if you would, to verse 31. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. So now the priests will eat a portion of the sacrifice. There are many kinds of offerings. Some we see here in this passage, others we don't. Each of them is fully explained in the book of Leviticus, which was also written by Moses. Because this is a unique consecration ceremony, some of the offerings that we see here will follow the coming sacrificial customs. Some of them are a bit different. So with uh, the, some of the second ram, along with some of that bread, you remember that he gathered at the beginning of this process, is literally waved before God at the altar and burned as a food offering to the Lord. Then another portion of the ram is waved before the Lord, and then it's boiled and eaten along with some of the bread. Now this is a shared meal. It's a shared meal of fellowship. So this is a sweet time during the ordination because they are eating some of what has been offered to God. It is if that bread and meat belong to God and he's sharing it, some of, the, some of that with them. I think there's a sense here that this is a family gathering of a kinship between these men and God. And again, I just see abundant grace and mercy and the privilege of these men sitting down um, and, and symbolically sharing a meal with the living God. But it's also interesting here because the, God establishes provision for how the priests will eat in the future. So remember that all of the priests, these men, and then um, the, the whole tribe of uh, Levi, instead of having land of their own when they get to the promised land, are interspersed among all of the other tribes, and they serve all of the tribes as their spiritual leaders. So they don't have an opportunity to be um, farmers, to grow or raise food of their own. So God sets the system by which they would always have a way to eat. In the future, when offerings are made, when food offerings are made, only a token of those offerings are burned at the altar, and then much of it would be held back um, by the priest for their own food. God has called these men into, li called these men into li lives of holy service. Their days are taken up um, by their work there at the tabernacle. He has no intention of letting them starve. Instead, they actually eat some of the finest um, food and wine and meat and grain that there is because you would have brought your best to the altar. And notice that verse 25 says that that contribution is to the Lord. It won't be God who actually eats of these offerings, but what is given um, to God's servants, God counts as being given to himself. Philippians 4.19 tells us this. 
and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this is actually Paul writing that verse here to the church in Philippi. And uh, they had been sending Paul, the church there, had been sending Paul provisions along um, his journey that he was on to spread the gospel. Uh, and he tells them that that sacrifice, what they gave up to provide for him as he did God's work, was pleasing to the Lord. They gave to Paul. Paul was unable to continue his work. Um, and in turn, Paul says, God will take care of the Philippians' needs. They will not be without because of their generosity. And I think there's a really important general principle at play here uh, that applies to us as well. God blesses our obedience and our generosity. Throughout the um, Old Testament history, you see that when Israel was obeying God, uh, he blessed them richly. And part of their obedience would have been to offer these regular sacrifices, some of which would have been reserved for the priests. I think it's a really beautiful cycle here with everybody doing their part. So we no longer have that same system, obviously, of sacrifices and priests, but Christ followers today should faithfully contribute to the needs of kingdom work and personally trust in God's provision in their lives as we do. So let's read our final portion of chapter 29. If you would, pick up with me in verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it and consecrate it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and a drink offering, and as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. So here the men will continue through their seven days of atonement in order to complete their consecration. During this time, the entire seven days, they remain within the courtyard walls. Um, and during this time, they would um, have helped both. I think this seven days would have been a time that helped both them and the men and women of Israel to really understand the importance that God placed on what was happening. It was a very lengthy ceremony. Each day, a bull is sacrificed in the place of the priest as a sin substitute. And each day, some of the bull's blood is placed on the altar to purify it so that it is fully set apart for God's purposes. And all of this happened so that the men and the entire tabernacle complex would be purified so that holy God could dwell there among the people. Though there's no longer need for believers to continually atone for our sins, it is a good thing for Christ followers to confess our sins daily so that our fellowship with God is not broken. So 
in verse 38, we sort of skip ahead from the consecration ceremony to what the priest's daily duties will be once they're fully um, installed at the end of those seven days. We know from Leviticus chapter 8 that they do not take a single day off after that intense seven-day ceremony. Instead, the priests entered into service immediately after the ordination process. In fact, the very next day. During their ordination, uh, during the seven days, it was actually Moses who offered the sacrifice. Once the men are instated, they will begin the work of serving as God's representatives um, to God's representative to Israel and Israel's representative to God, and that includes offering the sacrifice of a lamb, some grain, and um, some wine offering every morning and evening. Now, once the tabernacle is complete and the, the priests are offering sacrifices each day on their behalf, Israel will know that their God is mighty and living. They will see his presence there. They will know that he is a God who accepts their sacrifices and dwells among them. And I imagine that they would have been able at that point to really move through their days with a peace and a confidence that comes from knowing that God is real and he is so close to them. The generations of Israel's priests served a really important and necessary function But as we know, with the death and resurrection of Jesus, everything shifted. So who are the priests now? We are. Look with me at 1 Peter 2.9. We also looked at this verse last week. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have reserved, uh, you have received mercy. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, our sins are once and for all fully forgiven. It is no longer necessary to have this old system of priests that stand between us and God. We now have direct access to him, and we are now his servants and his spokespeople. I think that's a great honor and a great responsibility. Now, every morning and every evening at the tabernacle, sacrifices were consumed on the altar. There was nothing held back. It was a symbol of Israel's total dedication to God. As Christ followers, we too can begin and end each day surrendering our lives to his perfect will and dedicating ourselves to his service. And when we do that, we are useful to him and we are prepared to serve. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. Um, Your word is teaching us of the value and the beauty and the grace and the mercy that sending your son was and is in our lives. Um, I think it's so much more, God, than any of us really understand or know. I just pray that you would help us um, to live our lives in such a way and to think um, and to believe in such a way that the truth of what you have done for us permeates every part of our lives. I thank you that you have made a way um, to dwell with us. I thank you that you dwell within us now, um, that we are never without you. It is a, um, 
a great honor, but also very humbling, God, to be your representatives now. I pray that you would fill us with your um, discernment and your wisdom um, so that we could do that in a way that pleases you and honors you. I pray, I pray a blessing over each woman in this room and her family um, as we seek you and, um, and, and desire to walk in your ways. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.